Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. I'm rehearsing Nixon in China here at the L.A. Philharmonic. And, you know, I come back to the piece about once every five years or so. And I just absolutely don't know how I did it. It's just sort of like an artistic version of beginner's luck. I, I, I was so ignorant that I just didn't know what I was doing, and I did it. <laughs> in this episode, I speak with composer John Adams in the second half of a two-part conversation. In the first part of my conversation with composer John Adams, we talked about his childhood in New England, musical education, experiments in electronic music, move to California, and early works. Today, we'll focus on his later compositions and venture into operas, including his upcoming work for the San Francisco Opera. We continue our conversation where we left off. We had just finished talking about how his early works, Fridging Gates and Shaker Loops, had been turning points in his career. He had begun to be identified as a minimalist composer, alongside figures like Steve Reich, Terry Riley, and Philip Glass. But as you'll hear from John himself, he never really left behind his love for the classical music canon. You were driving around the Northern California landscape and listening to Wagner's Gotterdammerung on the tape deck, I think it was, and that began to pull at you. And at about the same time, the San Francisco Symphony musical director, Edo DeVart, recognized your potential as an orchestral composer, and the result of that was Harmonium, 1981. Talk about the driving around the landscape. And about, is that, do, I, do I remember from the reading of your book that that was, in fact, a major moment in your, in your development? Yeah, that, that was like a saw on the road to Damascus, I think. Uh, you know, I'd never really let uh, my love for the classical music canon behind. I was a rabble rouser and making crazy pieces like lo-fi. And, but at the same time, I still loved the great works, probably because I grew up playing in an orchestra. And my most powerful experience with music was listening to recordings of, you know, Sibelius and Schubert and Beethoven and Bach. So even though I was writing pieces in the minimalist genre in the late 70s, I was um, very much drawn to symphonic music and I just had incredibly good luck that I met this young Dutch conductor who had just succeeded uh, Seiji Ozawa at the San Francisco Symphony. And he was looking for a young composer. You know, he felt that was part of his uh, mission was to do new music. And he met me and he just offered me this commission. I remember it was a commission for $10,000, which was just money. I couldn't even believe it. Up to that point, you know, I was giving my pieces away. So I wrote um, this large piece with text by John Donne and Emily Dickinson, and it was performed at what then was a brand new Davies Symphony Hall at San Francisco. And um, that was definitely a major arrival moment because then it was shortly after performed in uh, Chicago and then at Carnegie Hall, and I was sort of now 
for lack of a better term, established in the, not in the general public mind, not like Yo-Yo Ma or something, but at least in the community of new music. Was it meaningful that this breakthrough occurred or this establishment occurred with a piece that involved texts? Because you would, of course, through your operas, become so well known as a composer of music with texts. I, I suppose in a way it was meaningful. Uh, certainly the text, particularly the Emily Dickinson texts, drew me in and drew something out of my imagination. And since then, I've written a lot of work to text. Uh, I don't know, seven operas. I can't remember how many operas I've written, but and two oratorios, El Nino and The Gospel According to the Other Mary, and all are very much text-driven. I, I once had a conversation with uh, Philip Glass, and we, we agreed that his his work is largely image-driven, and mine is very much text-driven. Right, right. Is it the rhythm of the language? Is it the images that are created by the language? What aspect of the text attracts your attention? It's every aspect of the text. It's the rhythm of the language. It's the meaning. But to put Dunn and Dickinson together is probably not an obvious choice. No, but when you a... think about it, it's, you know, the kind of modern writer, that's 19th century writer, writing in isolation, self-preoccupied with her own imagination, John Dunn on the big weighty issues of human life and salvation. Yeah, but they were both very erotic uh, poets. There, there are two Emily Dickinson poems in this piece. One is a very familiar one, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. But the second one was less known, a poem called Wild Nights. And I think I got it right with Wild Nights, that that poem is the closest thing to an orgiastic outpouring from Emily Dickinson as there is. And I, I went for it. Um, I mean, I didn't want to turn it into something purple, but I I used the massed forces of, of chorus and orchestra to summon up that powerful erotic uh, energy that's often just lurking under the surface of Emily Dickinson. It was about then that your mother began to send you news clippings about this young guy named Peter Sellers, an undergraduate still, I think, at Harvard at the time. You then ultimately would meet him, and he would soon thereafter propose to you that you write an opera, and he even gave you the title, Nixon in China. That's right, yes. 
several people had said, oh, the two of you should meet. And I had never seen him nor seen a picture of him. And he was at a music festival in uh, uh, the Monadnock Mountain area in southern New Hampshire. And I was home visiting my parents. So I drove there. And I remember this festival was in a like a, a school campus. And I remember sitting in the cafeteria awaiting. Uh, and I had no idea what this person would look like. And people would come in and I'd say, oh, that's what Peter Sellers looks like. No, it wasn't him. No, it wasn't. And then he finally arrived. And, uh, you know, anyone who's seen Peter Sellers know that this is, you know, the most extraordinary person. And uh, that was the beginning of really, aside from, you know, my wife and children, the most important person in my life. Yeah. But what was it like that he sat, sat down to you and said, let's do an opera and the opera is going to be called Nixon in China? <laughs> Well, you know, he he proposed this idea, and uh, he I think two things had contributed to it. One was that he had recently been to China. He had seen these propaganda films of ballet, uh, like The Red Detachment of Women. And then I think he'd also read uh, Kissinger's memoirs, and had just this all came together in his head. And um, the story goes, I've told this so many times, I don't even know if it's really true, but I think it is that I was appalled by the idea for a while, thinking it just could only be a ham-fisted satire. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it was a brilliant idea, that the characters were just waiting for dramatic treatment. And the story itself, which is really, you know, essentially about the collision of capitalism and communism, is... That's the sort of thing that opera really thrives on. How did you become confident that you could hold the composition together that was going to be that long? Because to date, your compositions were 28 minutes, you said earlier, uh, 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes. How did that happen? I don't have any idea. And as you and I are having this conversation, I'm rehearsing Nixon in China here at, at the L.A. Philharmonic. And, you know, I come back to the piece about once every five years or so. And I just absolutely don't know how I did it. And I don't know how Alice Goodman, the librettist, she produced what I think is quite possibly the greatest libretto in all opera since the Mozart da Ponte librettos. It is just this brilliant combination of wit and deep wisdom and philosophy and history and her control of language, uh, you know, whether it's Mao's spouting off his rhetoric or Nixon kind of chamber of commerce luncheon style of speaking. It's just brilliant. And I don't know how I did it. Um, I guess you'd call it just, you know, the, the, what is it? it's just sort of like an artistic version of beginner's luck. I, I, I was so ignorant that I just didn't know what I was doing and I did it. How did you proceed, the three of you then? Because you weren't living in the same places. So how did it work? Well, I think, you know, having Peter involved was critical because um, Alice and I immediately, well, we were communicating largely through letters. And you don't want to get into a fight with somebody who's really good with words (laughs) (laughs) because they can really, they can really just nail you down. And, you know, we were both full of anxieties because this suddenly became a big news item, you know an opera about Richard Nixon, a minimalist opera about Richard Nixon. So it was all over the press, and we were under terrific stress. But Peter was wonderful in terms of, you know, helping shape the general structure and and also kind of refereeing our uh, 
uh, often very uh, contentious relationship. Yeah. Was that the biggest orchestra for which you had composed? Uh, actually, the, the Nixon time? Orchestra is, is not that big. It's it's an unusual orchestra because it's very heavy on brass and saxophones, and it really at times sounds more like a, a sort of 1930s big band than it sounds like a traditional string orchestra. Shortly thereafter, uh, or maybe in the midst of the composition of Nixon in China, you write uh, Harmonie Lera, uh, which you said at the time combines fantasiacal chromatic harmony with the formal procedures of minimalism. I was given a kind of composing residence, a position with the San Francisco Symphony, which was very generously funded, um, which was a good thing because my wife and I had our first child to care for. And um, I wrote this work at a really fevered pace after a, 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 like an 18-month period of severe writer's block. This, this piece just came pouring out of me. And the title is a German word, Harmonielehre, which is roughly translated into a study of harmony or the book of harmony. And um, it's a kind of once-only Experiment. I, I don't think it could ever have been repeated, uh, certainly not by me, but it, it is for large orchestra and it makes use of the orchestra in the way that Mahler or you know, Wagner could have. And there are a lot of, not exact quotes, but citations or sort of backhanded references to the great romantic works, Debussy, Parsifal, Sibelius, Schoenberg, but the developmental processes are are minimalist. So um, it was a unique piece. It was first performed in 1985, and it's become not only my most popular large-scale work, but um, I think I can say this without being contradicted. It's probably the most performed large-scale work written in the last 30 years or so.
Were you writing it at the same time as Nixon in China? I wrote Nixon in China after I finished Harmony Lara. Nixon in China was written between 1985, right after Harmony Lara, and, uh, and premiered in 1987. It took me two years working virtually every day to write Nixon in China. Writing operas really labor-intensive. I once had a conversation with Frank Gehry in which I said, you know, you you can subcontract your electrical work and your plumbing and, <laughs> you know, the colors and stuff to somebody else, but the composer has to do everything. You know, we can't <laughs> subcontract anything out. So it's just, you know, every composer I know is extremely well-disciplined person because it's just an incredibly labor-intensive activity. Did you have a deadline? I did have a deadline, and I always work to deadline. That's something that propels you forward. But you said you had a two-year writer's block. So was that always lingering in your head, that uh, some anxiety about I had, another writer's block coming along? I had the serious writer block after my first big success uh, in 1981. I wrote two pieces for the San Francisco Symphony Harmonium and then a more kind of outlandish piece called Grand Pianola Music. And uh, I was getting a lot of attention. And I guess I got just sort of creatively self-conscious. Um, and I was really struggling hard because uh, I, I was getting an enormous amount of criticism, not only from music critics, but also from my colleagues. You know, it was a very confusing time. They were my own colleagues who were resentful of the success I was having. And then there were music critics who thought I was really cheap and my work was worthless. And so all of that came together to really block me for a while. And uh, I attribute getting out of that very largely to uh, the work I did with this Jungian therapist, John Beebe in San Francisco, who uh, understood my problem in an extraordinarily intuitive way and sort of helped me to win my way out of it. Did it help um, that you were working on an opera that involved collaboration with two others? In other words, you weren't alone in your room writing to deadline and writing for yourself, but rather you were writing in response to stimuli that came from Peter or from Alice. I think... You know, my my mother, as I mentioned, was a very dramatic person, and she loved to act on the stage. And I think I inherited that gene, and that when I first started writing for the stage, I just found it something very natural. It's interesting, because I basically don't much care for opera as a medium, and I, I almost never go to the opera. I live in San Francisco, where there's a great opera company, and I, I just don't like the whole thing. Uh, I, I don't like performances of Traviata that, that, you know, that, that are all about the singer and not about the music. But on the other hand, I think opera is a wonderful art form when it's at its best, like with Mozart or Wagner. Uh, and I'm very proud of the operas I've written. I, I think that they are a part of uh, our American collective uh, experience. So about this time, let's say late 80s, Peter comes to you with another idea for an opera, Death of Klinghoffer. Uh, how did you respond to that proposal? That was going to be another politically fraught or at least sensitive proposal. And what kind of research did you do into the subject to propel your music forward? I remember the subject of the death of Klinghoffer came up during the rehearsals for Nixon in China. We were in Houston 
because uh, Houston had commissioned the work. And uh, by that point, I'd really been bitten by this idea of writing opera, so I went for it immediately. I did a lot of reading. You know, I, I read the not all of the Old Testament, but I read a, a lot of it, and I read a great deal about the founding of Israel. I tried to read the Quran, but, you know, unless you have real guidance, trying to grapple with the Quran is very hard. But I read a great deal about uh, the Middle East, not only the contemporary Middle East, but the mess that the English made of it after, uh, even in the 19th century. Uh, I read about the Balfour Declaration. But of course, whenever you address that subject, there's bound to be somebody who is going to find fault with whatever you say, either one side or the other. Yeah. And how did you feel about the response to it? In fact, there was a response to it in Brussels where it premiered, and then, of course, there's a response when it comes to Brooklyn. Klinghoffer was premiered in Brussels in, uh, in 1991, and that was largely because there was this really remarkable arts administrator, Gerard Mortier, who you know believed in contemporary art and contemporary music as a, a cultural force. And he used his enormous prestige to make this happen. Uh, and I'm very, very uh, devoted to him as a result of that. You know, actually, when it opened in Brussels, it was kind of a non-event. You know, critics came from everywhere because Nixon in China had been such a big media event. And I think everybody was a little disappointed that Peter's production was very abstract and the music was sort of alternately explosive and very long, with long periods of kind of meditational music. It just didn't elicit much of anything. Uh, then it shortly played it thereafter in Lyon. But then in the fall, about six months later, it, then it opened at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn, and that's when all hell broke loose. So how did you respond to that? How did you feel? In, in I felt to that? really freaked out because the press was very, very nasty. Uh, it made fun of the music. It made fun of our supposed political pretensions. And of course, they began using the term anti-Semitic, which, you know, I mean, nobody wants to be accused of that. And I thought it was very unfair. Someone actually went to the Klinghoffer sisters and got them to make a statement 
uh, I think for the Los Angeles Times that they considered the work anti-Semitic. So it carried that mark on it. And even today, there are still people that I'm sure if you looked it up in Wikipedia, you'd probably find that term. Um, I think it was called anti-Semitic simply because we tried to tell both sides of the story. We wanted to honor the Palestinian version of the narrative as well as the Israeli or Jewish version of the narrative of the founding of Israel. And of course, when you do that, um, there are people who are just immediately ready to take offense. Yeah. The subject itself in the opera is so poignant uh, because, of course, Klinghoffer is killed, is murdered and thrown over the side. He's bound to a wheelchair, after all, and then he's shot and then he's thrown over the side of the ship. And his wife is unaware of that because they're separated from each other. So it's inherently a dramatic moment, but it's about a man uh, and a woman uh, whose children, as you mentioned, are still alive. So they weren't literary figures. Yeah. They, were, they were figures that people knew and, and loved. Yeah. Well, you know, when a person is no longer living, they are public, I mean, they're public domain. Uh, their lives are, and the daughter's, I thought they were a bit disingenuous because they criticized us for invasion of privacy. But long before we wrote our opera, there had been two made-for-television movies about the same thing. And in fact, I think one of them they collaborated as sort of consultants with. So they were fine with using this story as long as it told it the way they wanted to tell it. And then, of course, the opera... It largely laid dormant for, I don't know, almost 20 years in the U.S., uh, although it got off and on would get produced in Europe. And then the Metropolitan Opera uh, produced it in 2014, I believe. And that caused an even greater, uh, I guess you could call it a scandal. You know, it started with an online campaign you know, that spread rumors about it and, and just tried to create these memes that it was an opera that was sympathetic to terrorists or that, you know, it was um, anti-Semitic. Actually, most of the, the shaming was aimed less at me than it was at Peter Gelb, the general director right. of the Metropolitan Opera. Did that shake you uh, to such an extent that even unconsciously you were cautious about the subject matter of the next oratorio or the next opera? I mean, were you thinking about it on those terms? Well, I don't know. You know, we're in this really strange time right now where people, first of all, there are trolls out there. There are people who are just looking for something to get offended by or to try to cause hurt for somebody else. And, you know, unfortunately, we have a president who's showing how to do it. So I'm not super concerned about it. I mean, I, I, it was troubling for, you know, six months to open up the, the internet and see another nasty article, but they were almost always in these blogs. And in fact, you know, the New York Times, or I should say the failed New York Times, <laughs> uh, published two pieces on their editorial page, not in the arts page, but in the editorial page, affirming the value of the opera and pointing out that it was not anti-Semitic and castigating the Metropolitan Opera for canceling the international telecast. Oh, yeah. It was about this time, I think, that you also were getting increasing invitations to conduct. And so you were 
becoming a conductor composer. Uh, that was adding yet what more, one more burden on you or one more pressure on you in terms of your schedule, if nothing else. How do you organize your time? I don't organize it very well, actually. You know, I don't have an assistant. I just, for some reason, the idea of having an assistant of somebody who comes and helps me take care of business is very, it's just very alarming to my psyche. And, and so I tend to have this gigantic email inbox of unanswered mail. <laughs> um, but I'd rather be alone and somehow stumble through and be able to be master of my own time rather than to be that organized. <laughs> Can you compose on the road? I'm not uh, able to compose on the road. I have two places where I compose. I, I have a studio in our house in Berkeley, and then I built a little hut or like a little one-room structure in the deep redwoods uh, uh, on the Sonoma-Mendocino border, about five miles inland from the coast. And I hope it's still there. There was a tree uh, looming over it, and I haven't been up there now in almost two months in this terrific rainstorm. I i don't know if, it, yeah. if it's didn't, still did, there. Didn't Mahler have a composing hut? <laughs> he had several composing huts, um, but he also had... Uh, a whole staff of servants and cooks and stuff to take care of him. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, uh, this is turning into the 21st century, let's say around 2003. You compose Dharma at Big Sur, and we have to emphasize that that introduces every episode of this podcast. And so we're very, very proud very, of that. I'm, I'm proud of it, it too. Yeah. I read that you were listening, still listening to uh, Lou Harrison and Terry Riley at the time. So you hadn't, as you developed over the course of your musical career, abandoned earlier important people, you continue to listen to them. You know, the piece was kind of a, I wrote it in honor of them. I, you know, I've tried to make, not exclusively, but one of the things I've tried to do is to establish a kind of California identity in my music. And so Terry and Lou are really, in a way, they're the godfathers of California original music and Terry was born I think in Colfax and Lou was born in Oregon but spent most of his life living in Aptos so you know here's a piece that imagines Jack Kerouac standing on the cliffs at Big Sur and looking west and my thinking about how the beats were the the people who brought Zen and Oriental philosophy uh, to California and to the West and this music that's kind of plangent and somewhat influenced by Indian. You know, it's a kind of Westerner imagining the Far East and, and Lou Harrison was the first American composer to, uh, you know, actually travel to the Orient and incorporate Korean music and Balinese music and Chinese music into his own. Now, the, the West is bigger than that and more complicated and even more complex than that uh, because it involves a site that develops uh, the, nuke the bomb, the nuclear bomb. And, uh, and you write a, an opera about that, with Dr. Atomic in its title. You got a call from Pamela Rosenberg, who was general director of the San Francisco Opera, and she proposed that you write an American Faust opera. What was that like to get that call? Uh, Pamela was a remarkable person. She was 
a real intellectual. She had great imagination. And she made this proposition to me that I write a Faust opera and suggested the story of Robert Oppenheimer, whom she felt was a kind of American Faust, you know, this great, enormous intellect, highly sensitive, highly artistic uh, person who, in a sense, traded his soul to the devil for whatever, this knowledge of it. I kind of resisted the idea of him being a Faust, but I thought it was a great idea for an opera, and I immediately started reading. And the first book I read was this classic book by Richard Rhodes called The uh, Making of the Atomic Bomb, which is literally, it's a history of physics from Maxwell and Rutherford right up through Einstein. And uh, I read many other books And so we made this opera about Oppenheimer. And I love it uh, for many reasons, not the least of which is that many of the characters um, were from the University of California in Berkeley. Robert Wilson and Teller and Oppenheimer, they all taught there. Oppenheimer's brother. And Frank Oppenheimer, who I had met uh, towards the end of his life, he had founded the Exploratorium in San Francisco, and he was a flute player and loved classical music. So uh, everything came together to make this the ideal opera to be working on. Yeah, well, well, I think, you know, perhaps there's been some grouchy person who's had something negative to say about it, but it seems to me that it's been received with nothing but positive acclaim. I think the one criticism that was leveled at uh, Dr. Atomic had to do with the libretto. We had wanted Alice Goodman to do it, but by that point, Alice Goodman had made a, she's the librettist for right, yeah. Nixon and China and Klinghoff. She'd made this radical turn in her life that she, uh, who was born a Jew, had become um, a minister in the Church of England and was so busy doing funerals and baptisms and uh, sermons that she just simply didn't have time to write. So Peter had this, um, you know, typically radical idea of creating a libretto entirely out of original source material, what people really said, what documents that had been top secret at the time and were now available, And then the poetry that Oppenheimer loved, Baudelaire, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, John Donne, and turning this into a a really, really unusual libretto, which I have to say I really struggled with. I mean, it wasn't always easy to find musical expression for, uh, you know, some letter that Edward Teller had written or... uh, a conversation between two physicists about the shape of the plutonium sphere. But as is always the case with opera or oratorio, you're pushed and prodded to force your imagination to go to a place where it never would have gone otherwise. You know, how do I find music to express what it's like to be on the floor of the desert moments before the detonation of the world's first nuclear bomb you know i mean that's turns out to be a thrill to find music for that mm-hmm. but you were also able to maybe was not a faustian character but certainly a deeply conflicted character in robert oppenheimer uh, as at least the story goes on and it gets to what he's seen and when he's seen the explosion and so forth that was made for you as a dramatic moment yeah, the the, uh, the hit tune in Dr. Tomic is my setting of John Donne's famous sonnet, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. 
And it comes at the end of the first act. And Peter did this fabulous setting of it where the bomb, you know, it was the, the, the bomb was this big sphere and it was suspended from a, a derrick. And they put a, 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 like a shroud around it at night, I guess, to protect it from the wind or whatever. So there's something weirdly funereal about it. And Oppenheimer is alone and he sings this, uh, this aria, which is almost like a Baroque uh, Pasacalia, in which he admits his terrible feeling of having lost his soul and pleading God to come and beat him and knock him down so that he may rise again. And I have to confess that we sort of imported guilt to Oppenheimer at a time when he didn't have it. He was very arrogant and very pleased with himself in 1945. It was only later in the 50s that he began to realize the devastation and, you know, spent the rest of his life trying to convince people to disarm. Batter my heart Three-person You've received another commission from the San Francisco Opera, and it's called Girls of the Golden West. And I think it premieres this autumn. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, So tell us what that's about, and tell us the process by which you came to that, because I think it also involves deep research into documents, both perhaps by yourself, but by Peter, certainly. Uh, well, this is a rather uh, snarky title, Girls of the Golden West, because there's a Puccini opera called Fanciulla del West, which translates whenever it's done in English-speaking countries as Girl of the Golden West. And Peter and I were kicking around ideas for operas, and he mentioned that he'd been asked by La Scala to stage the Puccini. And Puccini is his least favorite composer, and he felt that this story... Uh, the way it was presented was kind of like Jack London, you know, that it was a period piece, but it told a sort of whitewashed version of the gold rush. So um, we both did a lot of deep research, which is one of the reasons I love doing these pieces, because I get to read so deeply. And uh, again, Peter compiled this libretto from original source material And, you know, the gold rush was really the first sort of media event. Every 
step along the way it was being covered in, in journalism back east. And, of course, most of the information was wrong or, you know, wildly exaggerated. And a lot of people came out here thinking that they would become very rich very easily. And, of course, that didn't happen. And I've, I've been working. I haven't finished it quite, but I've been working on it for about a year and a half. And all during the course of working on this, I'm dealing with these stories of the gold rush and, you know, horrible nativism and jingoism and uh, racist attacks on on Mexicans and Chinese and Native Americans and uh, Chileans and, uh, you know, even the few uh, freed slaves that came out here. And uh, I'm following the, you know, the presidential campaign and people screaming and yelling, lock her up. And and, uh, I'm finding that, you know, this is a perfect time to write this opera because here we are and I live not far from Silicon Valley where there is, it's like the new gold rush. You know, suddenly a person is, some stupid app on your iPhone is valued at $40 billion (laughs) And it's it's as unreal as as the fool's gold that uh, you know these people in 1850 thought they were going to get rich on. Yeah. Will the music sound Western? You know, it, it's funny. Uh, what I learned is that 1850, the country was really raw, and the piano music uh, or the the kind of music that people would perform was was pretty awful. You know, it was like bad European parlor music and most of it was kind of folk songs but what i did is i found a lot of texts gold rush texts at the california state library in sacramento and i just ignored the tunes most of the tunes were familiar anyway you know oh susanna or pop goes the weasel and i've written my own music to it the music is uh it's kind of gnarly and, uh, you know, more stripped down, you know, the way life probably was in a mining camp in 1850. Yeah. When does it open? It opens in November in San Francisco. And uh, I think it's going to be controversial in the sense that it's not really an opera. It's almost more like a show, you know, that there, there, uh, there are these choruses where I set these Gold Rush lyrics that... Uh, you know, they're, they're really, they're kind of kick-ass, energy, raw, hard-boiled, and yet at the same time, they tell fantastic stories uh, of people's lives. Yeah, well, we can't wait to see it, can't wait to hear it. Congratulations on that and oh, thank on you. everything else, and thanks so much for the time. It's, That's been great, Jim. It's been great seeing you. Yeah, yeah. you. Happy birthday. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. <laughs>